Welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today, provided nothing changes in the next few weeks, we are episode 53. So we are past the one year mark on the podcast. And like I said in the previous episode, I'm just so grateful to everybody who downloads and listens to these episodes. I'm so grateful for all the feedback I get, sometimes emails, sometimes messages on Instagram or just comments on my Instagram posts saying that um, this podcast is helping them. And that's exactly why I have created the podcast. So just to know that it's fulfilling its purpose is always wonderful to hear. And before we get going on today's episode, where I'll be talking about parasites, just a request, a plead to leave a review. Uh, You can leave a review on iTunes and I do believe Spotify as well. And you can obviously just leave a rating, but if you do have a moment to write a few words about what you enjoy about the podcast, that's always helpful for other people who are seeing the podcast and then wanting to filter out if it's something that they should listen to or not. Today, I'm going to be talking about parasites, um, specifically protozoa and helminths, which are intra-intestinal parasites, so parasites we would find in the intestines. There are obviously lots of different types of parasites, but just for keeping things simple and keeping things streamlined, I'm going to just stay strictly with intestinal parasites today. So the structure for the episode is going to be um, just introducing the protozoa and the helminths, telling you a little bit more about them and um, how, how they may be affecting the body. We'll then look at how we get exposed to these parasites because sometimes people think unless they've traveled to Asia or Africa, parasites shouldn't be an issue for them. And that's just simply not true. So we'll talk a little bit about exposure and then we'll talk a little bit about the impact that these parasites have on the immune system. You may have already listened to the previous episodes where I talked about viral infections um, and we talked a little bit about immune compromise. So this episode piggybacks quite nicely off of the previous episode um, in terms of the overlap in how parasites impact the immune system and how the immune system impacts parasites. And then we'll talk about if this is something that you, you need to address. There is this idea that some parasites can be asymptomatic and some can be symptomatic and sometimes we just don't know. So I'll talk a little bit about how I filter out the information and how I make these clinical decisions about whether or not we address a parasite. We'll talk about testing options and then finally we'll talk about what do you do if you you have a parasite or you think you have parasites and how do you go about addressing them in the hope of improving your energy and your health and supporting your chronic illness. So let's dive right in and talk about intra-intestinal parasites, specifically protozoa and helminths. So both of these parasites live within the intestinal environment of the host. Protozoa includes a long list of organisms, but the main ones that we'll be able to pick up on with testing are blastocystis, 
Diane to Mima Fragilis, those two come up the most, I would say, in the testing that I do. We've got Entamoeba, Giardia, Trichomoniasis, Blastocystis, I think I already mentioned that one, Chilomastix mesnili, Cryptosporidium. So there's a long list of different organisms and I am not going to list them all off because A, it's incredibly boring, B, I can hardly pronounce half of the names, but the main ones that I would say I see in clinical practice are Blastocystis species, Dientamoeba fragilis, sometimes Giardia, um, those are probably say are the top three, although please know that there are others and for simplicity's sake, I'm not going to read them all off in this episode today. I also have a blog on this on my website. So if you want to actually see the names or read a little bit more of this information, you can refer to that blog. Just go to my website, go to the blog and just type in parasites in the search and it should come up for you. Then in terms of helminths, helminths are mainly the worms. So roundworms, tapeworms, flatworms, and liver flukes. That is what we're referring to when we refer to the helminths. So going a little bit more into detail with the protozoa, a protozoa can be an R symbiotic and they can live in a mutually beneficial relationship with other organisms. But some others can be parasitic, they can cause disease in humans, animals, and plants. And one of the biggest impacts that protozoa have on our health as human beings is they can negatively impact the gastrointestinal system and specifically the gastrointestinal lining. So this could be by inhibiting the enzymes of the brush border, by attracting mast cells and dendritic cells, which are immune cells by disrupting the tight junctions. So the tight junctions are what um, impact the permeability of the gut membrane. And if you've heard of leaky gut syndrome, then leaky gut syndrome is when there's damage to the tight junctions and the tight junction proteins. They can cause damage to the cells of the intestinal membrane. They can impact intestinal mobility or motility, should I say. They can increase mucus secretion in the gastrointestinal tract. And they can also change the composition of the normal flora in the gastrointestinal tract. So when we're looking at digestive issues, we want to consider if there is a parasite which is perhaps impacting the flora of the gut, the health of the gut lining, and maybe even the brush border enzymes, because these are all going to be important in terms of gastrointestinal function. And unless we can address a potentially problematic parasite, we may only get so far with working on digestive health and then constantly feel like we're hitting up against a wall. So if you're having a lot of GI issues and you're not getting traction, you haven't considered parasites, maybe this could be a little prompt as something to consider and explore. So those are the protozoa. The other category of intraintestinal parasites are the helminths. And the helminths are essentially, they're worms. And they are prevalent in many parts of the world, particularly in areas with poor sanitation and limited access to clean water. But that doesn't mean that you cannot be infected in a first world country where you do have good sanitation and you do have access to clean water. 
because they can also be acquired through the ingestion of contaminated food, contact with contaminated soil, or through direct contact with animals or people who are also infected. Helminths, compared to the protozoa, are less destructive on the gut tissue, but they can be more depleting of nutrients and that can contribute to compromising the immune system. So in the previous episode where I talked about viral infections, we talked a lot about immune compromise and the importance of ensuring a robust and healthy immune system. So if you've got some helminths knocking around in your gut, that could be something that's creating wear and tear on the immune system and then making you more susceptible to reactivation of latent infections or recurrent infections. Helminths can spread through the body and they can activate the Th2 pathway of the immune system. Now, I won't go into too much detail today about Th1 and Th2 immunity because I want to keep this simple and not too confusing. But that means that it makes you increasingly susceptible to things like allergies and asthma and also increased histamine production, maybe in some cases, mast cell activation syndrome. So that can sometimes be a clue that there are helminths in the system where somebody is a little bit more um, on that allergy, histamine type of symptom spectrum. Symptoms can vary depending on the location of the infection. Obviously for today, we're focusing on intra-intestinal infections, but understanding that these helminths can go elsewhere in the body and impact different organ systems. So common symptoms may be abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, fatigue, weight loss, and stubborn anemia. So for example, if you're repeatedly doing tests, um, blood tests like a full blood count and your hemoglobin or your blood cells are constantly coming up low, that could be another little sign to consider whether there are some helminths knocking about in your system. That being said, Helminths can be a little bit controversial because they actually can also sometimes be protective for the body. Because they increase the Th2 activity of the immune system, that may help to counterbalance the Th1 activity of the immune system, which is usually dialed up quite high when someone has autoimmunity. Therefore, if someone has an autoimmune condition, then we may want to have a little bit of hesitancy towards addressing helminths that could be in the system because that could possibly cause a flare of the autoimmune condition. So this is where nuance comes in in chronic fatigue and chronic illness recovery. Not all cases are the same. And there's a huge amount of popularity at the moment in doing parasite cleansers. I'll talk about those a little bit further along in this episode. But there's this just this idea that, you know, absolutely everyone should be doing these parasite cleanses several times a year. Um, this is some of the messaging that I see on social media. But we have to really trade cautiously here. If someone has a diagnosed autoimmune condition, they may be at risk of a flare. Um, but then if we don't address the helminth, that could put them at risk of immune compromise and nutrient deficiencies. So therefore, we have to consider the overall status of the individual and then make specific um, decisions about how we support that individual on a case by case basis. 
And some of you may already be following me on Instagram and you probably see on Instagram, um, I do a weekly Q&A where people just get to ask me questions. And actually, I love answering the questions. I love seeing what, what people are curious about and what people want to know. Um, but I also find it incredibly challenging. I think just because of the way that my brain works and understanding that chronic illness is complex and nuanced. And then people will ask a question that probably in their mind is like totally simple. And I'm like, we need a whole podcast episode to address this question. So like if someone asks like tips on parasite cleansing, I'll be like, well, where do we begin? What type of parasite is it? Do you have autoimmunity? What else is going on in the body? You know, there's loads of different things going on. And I guess you kind of have to listen to every single episode of this podcast to really be able to put it all into context. Um, but that is just one little example of how things um, can be quite nuanced. And we do need a personalized approach to fatigue and health and chronic illness recovery. It's not a one size fits all approach. Anyway, I love to go on these little tangents and I digress. So let me bring it back and let's talk a little bit about exposure. So I did my first nutritional therapy degree in 2008-2009 and at the time we were taught to ask in our consultations about foreign travel implying that somebody would only be exposed to a parasite if they had maybe traveled abroad to a third world country, thinking, you know, Asia, Africa, somewhere where there isn't always clean water or, or good sanitation. However, I'll say this now that that just simply is not true because parasites are in fact incredibly common. There just isn't efficient screening for them. Um, which I'll discuss when we talk about testing later, but most people are probably knocking about with parasites, whether it's not causing an issue for them, you know, needs to be discovered or determined. But the number one exposure to parasites and protozoa in the developed world is food. So seafood and salads, most commonly from food handling. So somebody has a parasite, they go to the bathroom, they don't wash their hands properly, they work in a kitchen, they prepare your salad, they prepare your seafood, and the food is contaminated, you eat it, and you become contaminated as well. So that is one of the most common exposures. Other common exposures are pets. So there can be pet to human transmission through the handling of your pet's feces, or perhaps if they're sort of wounds, um, open wounds on the pet or open wounds within yourself. There can be contamination in parks, playgrounds, and on beaches. So someone walks their dog, their dog goes to the toilet in the park, they pick it up, they clear it, but there's inevitably going to be some fecal matter that is still on the ground. And then perhaps you walk around, whether you've got shoes on or barefoot, you bring that footwear into your home, you don't take your shoes off at the door, you walk around a little bit, then you take your shoes off, then you walk around barefoot, then you touch your feet. So these are how, these are just different mechanisms by which we can become contaminated. If you garden, if you get dirt under your fingernails, that's another opportunity for contamination. Um, and also waterborne transmission. So lakes, rivers, 
even swimming pools, even swimming pools that are chlorinated, some of these infections can actually be chlorine resistant. And even small infections can penetrate water treatment systems. So if you're somebody who is swimming a lot, um, I swim in the sea and I hope that the, the salt water would be a little bit protective, but um, I do enjoy swimming. So um, that is potentially an, an area where you could pick up an infection, especially if you are then traveling and swimming in large untreated bodies of water. So there's a lot of opportunity for infection and I want to highlight this because sometimes I'll be speaking with clients or people who are exploring working with me and I'll ask them, oh, have you considered parasites or did you do any stool testing? And they're like, oh no, like I have not traveled anywhere in years. And um, it's just really important to understand it's not just foreign travel where we pick these things up. When I'm running stool tests with my clients, for the most part, I would say about 80% of the time, we're picking up with parasites in the stool tests. And I'll talk about this a bit more when we talk about testing, is that these tests aren't even absolutely reliable in terms of picking things up. We can get a lot of false negatives. So yeah, I, I assume that there's a lot of people out there with parasites is all I want to say. So now that you understand what they are, now that you understand that you could potentially pick one up quite easily, how do they impact the immune system? And there's a few different things I want to cover. So I want to cover opportunistic infections. I want to cover this, the idea of latent infections. I want to cover the idea of slow infections. And I want to cover the idea of chronic infections. So let's start with opportunistic infections. And here, as you've probably already discussed, uh, or as you've probably already picked up as I talked about exposure, We've lived alongside these organisms for the whole of our human existence. They are not a new phenomenon. And therefore, there's a school of thought that certain infections, for example, helmets, may have a beneficial effect on the immune system. We're supposed to live synergistically side by side with other organisms. However, there's also a different opinion that these infections can be asymptomatic and someone who has a robust and strong immune system will be able to clear them without the need for external assistance. However, we cannot always rely on having a robust immune system, especially if you are somebody who is experiencing a chronic illness. So someone with a compromised immune system may be more susceptible to infections or may struggle to get rid of the infections after exposure and hence experience more symptoms as a consequence because the immune system may be trying to get rid of something, but it just isn't robust enough to eliminate the infection. And this is where we may want to help the body to clear the infection. However, we have to be really careful about not being too heavy handed with protocols and supplements which are aggressive and eradicate the infection until we have done our due diligence to support the immune system. So if you listen to the previous episode where I talked about viral infections, 
one of the biggest take-home messages from that episode was it's not about going in with the antivirals to kill, 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 but it's much more about supporting the robustness and the resilience of the individual so that the immune system can do what it needs to do. And in this case, we are living alongside these organisms all the time, and but they can be, or shall I say, they can opportunistically infect us and create problems when we don't have the natural resilience in our system. So we want to make sure we're supporting the immune system so that the immune system can clear the infection. Um, and we don't want to just go in constantly with antimicrobials or antibiotics to remove the infection. We really want to think about what the body needs in the long term to be able to do this for itself. So that's opportunistic infections. The next one is latent infections. So a latent infection is when an infection is hidden from the immune system and it can be dormant for weeks, for months or for years. And infections can hide in what are known as biofilms, which is a mucosal layer that can form around any organism. It could be yeast, fungi, mold, bacteria, and parasites in this case. And the biofilm is this layer that forms around the organism and it prevents the immune system from sensing the infection. And it's also a reason why some gut infections can go undetected, even with comprehensive stool testing. So I mentioned briefly how testing can give false negatives, and that might be because the infection is protected with a biofilm. It's not picked up on the test, but it's there, it's just not being detected. And then if we have a latent infection, it's hidden from the immune system, it's fairly inactive, it can then become active when the immune system is compromised. So someone has a parasitic infection, they get a tummy bug, so they get norovirus. Then what happens? All of a sudden, their digestion is never the same again. That's a classic example of some sort of viral infection creating some change in the immune system. And the immune system becomes compromised. It can no longer keep the latent infection latent. The latent infection becomes active and now it starts to cause problems with the body. And this is what I see in clinical practice all the time. Someone gets a tummy bug and then all of a sudden things are never the same, whether that's in their gut or the rest of their body. So once a latent infection has become activated, then we may want to eradicate it. But the priority, first and foremost, is to support the immune system either before or alongside the eradication. So we don't just go in heavy handed with antimicrobials or antibiotics. We may need to use antimicrobials. We may need to use antibiotics, but we support the immune system first and foremost to increase the resilience and capacity of the individual. And then the antimicrobials or the antibiotics are the cherry on the top. So the next type of infection is a slow infection. Slow infection is similar but different to the latent infection in that the infection can have a long incubation period followed by progressive disease over time. So with the latent infection, it might be a bit more of like a, a, a quick, sudden change, like something happens and there's a sudden change, whereas a slow infection is progressive and gradual. 
it becomes more problematic over weeks or months or years. And due to the very nature of a slow infection, it makes it really hard to identify because sometimes things are kind of gradually changing. And I know even in my illness experience, my health changed kind of slowly over time that it was easy to deny and you know sweep things under the rug and just ignore things until it got really, really bad. And then because of that, it's really hard to make the connection like this is when everything changed and therefore it's kind of difficult to work out exactly what may be causing the problem. It's important to understand that we are more susceptible to slow infections as the immune system ages and this is a concept known as immune senescence. Basically we all experience a natural decrease in our immune function as we age and an impaired ability to respond to pathogens. You know, everybody knows, like elderly people, their immune systems are not as robust. But we do have things that we can do to reduce immune senescence. And there are diet and lifestyle factors that we can use to, use to slow the aging process and sustain a higher degree of immune competence. So when someone is experiencing a slow infection, again, there's two things we need to do. We need to support the health of the immune system and then, if necessary, address the specific infection with some sort of you know, natural antimicrobial, antibacterial, or um, you know, modern medicine as well, antibiotics. And then the final one on the list is the chronic infection. So parasite infections, particularly protozoa, we've already talked about how they can really impact the gut lining. They can disturb and decrease the mucosal immunity. So when we've got our gut, our gut has a mucosal layer, which is the first line of defense for the immune system. And as soon as we start to get wear and tear and damage to that mucosal layer, that has a profound impact on the immune system. And because these protozoa can decrease the mucosal immunity, that makes us more susceptible to reinfection, so getting the same parasite of infection again, or other infections. And so a large part of managing chronic infections is looking at strengthening the immune system as a whole, but specifically looking at the gut mucosal immunity, the gut lining and the mucosal layer um, of the gut wall, so that we, we are more robust, we are more resilient against repeat infections. So there's a theme here, and I think this theme is the same as the theme that I discussed in the viral infections and chronic fatigue episode. We really want to be thinking about what the immune system needs. What does this individual, what do you as an individual need to support your immune system? I touched on that in the chronic um, viral infections or the viral infections and chronic fatigue episode, but we'll touch on that again a little bit more here as well. So the next question is, you, you do a stool test, you find a parasite in your stool, and now you're asking the question, is this asymptomatic or is it symptomatic? Is this something that I address or is this something that I don't address? And that's not a straightforward answer. I do believe that it's something that we need to answer on a case-by-case -case basis. 
but it is possible for humans to live in synergy with parasites and protozoa, and they can be absolutely asymptomatic. But whether or not we address possible or known parasites and protozoa is a decision that we have to make based on the individual, based on a case-by-case basis. So also keeping in mind that if it is something we directly want to address, there may be some things that we need to make as a priority first, for example, supporting the immune system. So here it's important to understand that any infection, not just parasites, can activate pre-existing injury or weakness in the body. So if the brain is already inflamed and then you get a gut infection, that can create more inflammation in the brain. It can also just increase systemic inflammation in the body. It can also trigger or perpetuate any autoimmune conditions that are present. Infections deplete the body's antioxidant reserves. They can disturb the microbiome. They can also uncouple mitochondria, which means that they prevent the production of energy through the formation of ATP. So this is where I'd just like to highlight for in the case of chronic fatigue or chronic illness, we do really have to seriously consider the role of parasites and protozoa and how they are contributing to the individual's symptoms. I think it's slightly different if someone is fairly well and they've got a parasite in their stool and there's a few other things they could be working on like better sleep, blood sugar. We would probably just address those things first and then if they're feeling good, they're feeling good. Maybe not even go after the parasite. But in the case of somebody who's experiencing a chronic illness, I would normally take that pretty seriously in terms of how it could be contributing to their symptoms. And sometimes we're just never going to know for sure. And we only get the feedback once we've addressed the infection. If they feel better, we know it was worth it. If they don't feel any different, well, then maybe there's other things we need to be looking at. If they feel worse... That could be because, for example, there's some autoimmunity and we removed the helminth and that's impacted the immune system. But it could also be that the approach was too aggressive for the individual at the time and they needed more support for their immune system first. This is where I have to say that, like, you know, often when my clients are looking to me for answers, they want me to have like all the answers and they want to just know if I do X, I'll experience Y. And what it's really important to understand, you know, whether you're trying to muddle your way through this on your own, whether you're working with a different practitioner, is that there there is no certainty. Functional medicine is built on the four pillars of case history, client symptoms, test history or, or test results, and then response to symptoms. And so 25% of functional medicine is trying something because there's a hypothesis and then the response to the intervention may either you know prove the hypothesis correct or generate a new hypothesis so there's no certainty but what I would say for the most part is if I suspect parasites or we see parasites in testing with a client with chronic fatigue or chronic illness it's probably something I'm going to want to address with my client. But I would always want to do that when I feel that they are stable and robust enough to handle it. So there may be some things that we do first before we actually get to 
the addressing of the parasite, but I would definitely want to consider it as something that needs to be addressed. And here I'll just add that um, this is also something that clinically, when we do intervene and we do address the parasites in clinical practice, it makes a difference in my clients. So I haven't had anyone do any parasite work and feel worse. I haven't had anyone do any parasite work um, and just not really notice a difference. I think all my clients will notice a difference for the most part. So that's also something worth noting. So let's move on to testing. As I've hinted to you already, testing is not 100% reliable. So there's no perfect test for parasites. But the test that I like to use is the Comprehensive GIFX Stool Test by Genova Diagnostics. There are other stool test options out there. This is just the one that, that I like to use, provided it's available to the client. I do work with clients all around the world, and sometimes we use different tests just because it is the most accessible for them. But this test uses um, polymerase chain reactions, so PCR technology, which is a DNA-based testing method, essentially finding the DNA of these organisms, and also microscopy, so looking under a microscope you know, visually for the presence of parasites. So I like that it does both. Sometimes um, you know, in the past we only had access to microscopy when I first started practicing, so it's nice to have the... PCR, the DNA-based method as well. And um, fun fact is that I did, when I did my first degree in South Africa, one of my majors was biochemistry, and I actually learned how to do polymerase chain reaction, PCR, and um, we coded the DNA of an onion. <laughs> so yeah, many years ago, I learned how to extract the DNA from an onion and produce its code. I don't think it's been very useful to me at all moving forward into the future, but at least I have an in-depth understanding of what PCR involves. So coming back to the stool test, um, it relies on three stool samples, and these are collected over three consecutive days. So some stool tests only involve one collection. The three-day collection just does increase the chances that we'll, we'll find something potentially. However, because infections like to hide in biofilm, a negative results doesn't necessarily rule out the parasites and the protozoa. As an insurance policy in clinical practice, this is how I like to work. I obviously do all the groundwork with my clients to support their immune system and their digestive system as a whole. We obviously would address any known infections revealed by testing you know, when the time is right. And then I like to use the Full Moon Parasite Cleanse by Cellcore once all the work has been completed. I, I see the Full Moon Cleanse as like the, the cherry on the top. This person has done a lot of good work. They've laid all their foundations. They're fairly stable in their physiology. Right, let's just do a Full Moon Cleanse and just see if anything else improves. Um, and this strategy seems to be working quite well for me in clinical practice. Again, I don't, it's not a blanket thing that I use with everyone. It's people generally that I've ended up using it with have had other signs that they may have parasites. So, you know, there are some clinical decisions to be made there. But how the protocol works is it's, I think, four different products that you take five days across the full moon. So 
two days before the full moon, the day of the full moon, and two days after. You can also do it for three days if you're a little bit more sensitive, or seven days if you're like super robust and quite experienced, but the average I would do is five days. And um, the reason being is that because of the change in light around the full moon, I believe that it influences the body's um, serotonin and melatonin production. And this is when the parasites are most active and they're more likely to reproduce. So doing the full moon protocol means that you are essentially killing off or hopefully killing off the parasites as well as the eggs so that you're increasing the chances of just eradicating um, more of the possible infection. And I might use that initially with clients like three months back to back and then do you know once every six months or once every three months. It really depends on the person. When I've done it myself, I did three consecutive months, then three months after that, and then another three months after that. And now I just don't really feel the need to do it. I'll probably do it maybe at least one more time before the end of the year. The last time I did it was about April time. So maybe towards the end of the year in six months time, I might do another one. You may find visible worms in your stool. And so this is a bit of a trigger warning. So if you don't want to listen, maybe just skip ahead for the next minute or so. Um, but people always ask me for these details in client consultations, so it's worth sharing them. You, you may poop out worms. And sometimes there are like little dangly bits that you need to just like grab a, a bit of toilet tissue and help to come out so just to be prepared for that if it's something that you ever decide you want to entertain but I've experienced that several of my clients have experienced that and it's kind of like this feeling it's like the worst and best feeling all wrapped into one it's really icky and horrible but at the same time you're like so happy that this thing is out and leaving your body um so yeah it's it's kind of like a weird type of fun to, <laughs> to think about um but definitely worth doing when you are robust enough to do it i made the mistake the most recent one i did i did when i had my period and I would not recommend that because there's just too much else going on when a woman menstruates. Your hormones are so low, you're not as resilient as stress. And I, I really felt awful for that one. So like real like full body aches, just really tired, really yucky. Um, so I would recommend if the full moon falls over your period, you wait until another cycle when you can do it at a better time. So that is the, the parasite cleanse. So other testing you can do is a full blood count. Um, specifically here, what we might be looking for is elevated eosinophils greater than 3%. This could suggest a parasite infection. However, it's not definitive. We may also see elevated eosinophils when there's um, increased histamine production, which can then actually also be related to parasites. But it's important to understand that it's not a given. However, anecdotally in practice, when I have seen clients with high eosinophils, they've been high histamine in terms of their symptoms, they have had very much success with doing the full moon parasite cleanse that I described. So the next thing I wanted to touch on is immune suppression and parasites, because a big part of dealing with infection in chronic fatigue and parasites and protozoa specifically 
is supporting the host's immune system. And this can be simple in some cases and more complex in others, depending on the individual's unique makeup. So anything that weakens the T cells and B cells of the immune system will impact the body's ability to clear parasites. So things that we want to consider, things that would weaken the T cells and B cells would be overtraining. And I mentioned this in the previous episode because we wouldn't necessarily think that someone with chronic fatigue is going to be overtraining. But overtraining is relative to the individual and the amount of oxidative stress which is being produced. And people with fatigue, one of the reasons why we get post-exertional malaise and post-exertional energy crashes is because we produce so much oxidative stress from exercise. So it's very relative to the individual. If we exercise or move our body more than our body will allow, we are overtraining, even if that is just a very, very small amount of exercise. Another thing that may um, impact the T and B cells would be bone marrow suppression, which is impacted by radiation, severe inflammation or malignancy, chronic viral infections. This is kind of like chicken or egg because chronic parasitic infections can also lower immune function and that leads to chronic viral infections. So, and then we go around and around in circles. Overall, the immune system is compromised. Sleep disorders will weaken the T cells and B cells, which is why you must find a way to sleep. Even if it's medicated sleep at first, finding a way to sleep is really important when we're working with the immune system. We need to look at malnutrition, proteins, fats, vitamins and minerals, ADE and K, iron, copper, zinc, B vitamins, vitamin C. Autoimmune diseases may also impact the T and B cells. And if you're somebody for whatever reason, maybe pain management needs to use a lot of corticosteroids, that's also going to impact your immune system. So additionally, we also want to avoid things that could negatively impact the gut microbiome. And so that would include a very um, limited diversity in your diet. We know that a diverse diet leads to diversity of the bacteria in the microbiome, and that's really important for health and immune function. So living in very sterile environments. I know when there was COVID, everybody was sanitizing their hands and wearing face masks and wiping things down. But actually we need a, a, a dirty environment. We need to expose ourselves to dirt and germs and that can actually have a positive impact on our immunity as a whole. Poor sleep can impact the microbiome, poor circadian rhythms. So not waking up and going to bed at the same time each day, not getting um, morning light exposure, not moving enough, taking antibiotics, taking non-steroidal inflammatory drugs, eating foods with lots of pesticides, use of artificial sweeteners. All of these things will impact the microbiome. All of these things will then impact immune function. In the previous episode, um, we talked a little bit about viral infections and how we support the immune system. Because I've already touched on that in the previous episode, I'll go through these quite quickly and then I'll just talk a little bit about addressing parasites specifically. So um, sleep, I've already touched on. We need to sleep. And if you're not sleeping, you have to find a way to sleep. And granted, that is easier said than done, but you have to find a way. And it may take lots of different things. It may take weeks or months to find out what you need to do, but you need to sleep. 
We need stable blood sugar. I talk about blood sugar a lot. I've got an episode on blood sugar and an episode on the ketogenic diet, which you can listen to on that. In the previous episode, I talked about the importance of eating adequate protein and eating adequate fat. We've already talked about some of the nutrients that we need. Um, We need to make sure we're moving in an optimal way for our body. And that's controversial. I have people on social media telling me all the time how dangerous it is to tell people with chronic fatigue that they need to move. But you need to move. It's You need to move within your capacity at a level that's appropriate for your body, even if that is just a few walks down the hallway to go to the bathroom a few times a day. If that's your starting point, that's your starting point. But we need movement. We also need to support the nervous system. And again, I've got several episodes where I touch on the nervous system. Think about episode nine. I look at the nervous system specifically, but then I weave in a bit more nervous system work into a lot of the other episodes. And so then that kind of just leads the gut. And the gut is where if we're looking at intestinal parasites, that's where they're hanging out. So we want to make sure that the gut is firing on all cylinders as it's supposed to that there should be a good balance of beneficial bacteria. There should be, there shouldn't be an excess of unhelpful bacteria. We should be producing short chain fatty acids through the fermentation of dietary fiber. We should have nutrients for a healthy mucosal membrane. We also might want to think about other infections that might be there. So yeast or bacteria like H. pylori. We want to think about what we need to do with those. We need to be producing adequate digestive enzymes, adequate stomach acid. We need to make sure that we are digesting fat well. So there's lots of different touch points for the gut and really want to make sure that all of those are being optimized. And then once we've done all of that work, then we can start to think about what specifically is going to help to remove the parasite. And that might be something like wormwood, black walnut, olive leaf, garlic extract, and also a fan of oregano. Oregano is um, great for blastocystis. So there are several nutraceuticals that we can take, but it's also important here to understand that the antiparasitic nutraceuticals work by hindering the growth of the organism, protein synthesis, DNA replication, etc. But the immune system is what kills the parasite. Therefore, we need to do our due diligence to support the immune system, and that includes the mucosal immune system of the gut, prior to anti-parasitic treatment. Because if we just go in all guns blazing with some wormwood, and we're not sleeping, and we don't have good blood sugar, and we're not eating enough protein, and we're not eating enough good fats, and we're nutrient depleted, and we don't have a good balance of bacteria in our gut and we don't have a healthy mucosal lining and we haven't got the tools to support our immune system it'll either not work or you'll make yourself feel worse so that's really it in a nutshell today um very similar to the viral infections and chronic fatigue episode it's something that can feel a little bit of a mystery and we can think it's very complicated But at the end of the day, it just comes back to these basic foundations. And I feel like I'm a bit of a broken record. And I I say this now in almost every single episode, but stability, 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 stabilize your sleep, stabilize your blood sugar, address nutrient deficiencies, 
adequate protein, adequate fats, nervous system support, movement, circadian rhythms. These are the foundations on which your health is built. And I see it time and time again with people who are coming to me for help and none of these things are in place and yet they have been working on their health for so long and it's not their fault. It's just that they haven't had the right information. So here is the right information for you today. I hope you will take it, you'll use it, you'll implement it in a way that is not overwhelming um, and that you'll start to gain the traction that you want on your health. I would love to say, and if you need more help, um, I'm here to help you. But actually, at the time of recording this, which is the beginning of July, um, I'm closing down, temporarily closing down my applications for one-to-one support just because I have had so many people apply to work with me, I'm, I'm not keeping up with the applications. And then I feel really guilty for not getting back to people soon enough because I know that people want to need help. So I'm pausing my intake of one-to-one clients. When that's open again, um, I'll probably just let people know through my mailing list. So if you're not already on my mailing list, just sign up for something on my website and then you'll get added. And then, yeah, I will be opening my one-to-one support again. I am thinking about my business and how I help more people. Obviously, I know just having the podcast helps more people, but maybe I'm not ready for it yet, but just kind of thinking about getting someone, getting a, training up another Anna to help um, with some of the workload. Um, So watch this space on all of that. But I hope you have enjoyed listening to this today i hope there's been something useful for you to take away and implement that makes a difference in your health and in your day and in your quality of life and i will see you in the next episode